David has run out into the wilderness and, and, and life on the run in the wilderness, life in the wilderness, that's a young man's game. And as a young man, uh, David, he played it as well as it can be played. His private army, you remember, his private army just grew and grew and grew as did his legend and he became the most famous man in the land, the most powerful warrior in the land uh, before he ever became the king of Israel. And now here, here he is, a generation later, however the situation was far different because he's no longer a young warrior, he, he, but now he's an aging king. David was again a fugitive in, in an unforgiving desert and th this time it was because of his own son, because his own son had, had led a rebellion and driven him out of Jerusalem. I mean, how humiliating for a king. And how utterly shameful for a father. David had conquered Israel's greatest enemies and he would made allies out of all of his other foes. Yet he could not stop his own son from leading a mutiny against him. So hiding in the desert for the second time in his life. David the psalmist immortalized what God was teaching him in, his, in, in this valley of his life in Psalm chapter 3. Which is a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. And he wrote, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked, for from the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your, tent, on your people. And when you begin to understand the context of when David wrote these things, it gives a lot more depth to, to things like that. But you know, David, you know, when he became king of Israel, you remember one of the first things that he did, if, if not the first thing that he did, was that he moved uh, the, the capital of Jerusalem, capital of Israel to the city of Jerusalem. And and, and, and then early on, he sent for God's holy ark of the covenant to be brought into the city because he knew that, that with it would come God's uh, overwhelming and uh, overflowing blessing. Here we are years later. Now he has fled Jerusalem and there is a, his own son, has the self-appointed King Absalom, his first act was despicable. Not knowing, you know, David as he ran from Jerusalem, not knowing if he was ever going to return to Jerusalem. I'm sure he hoped that he would, but he didn't really know for sure what was going to happen. David left behind ten of his concubines to keep the palace in order. Now, we need to understand, concubines were not exactly wives, but, but they were still an official and a respectable part of, of the, the family. And, and so he left these ten women behind to care for the palace, to take care of things while he's, while he's gone there, from there. And, uh, and when Absalom learned of, the, of, of his, the women his father had left behind, what he did, he did this to completely humiliate David, but he set up a tent on the palace rooftop and one by one he raped each of David's concubines in front of the entire city. Now, and his intention was to completely humiliate his father, and he was also sending the message to any of David's loyalists that were still in Jerusalem 
that he and his father would never be reconciled. There's no way he's going to let that happen. He's going to make sure that, 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 that everybody understands that David can never come back as long as Absalom's there. And beyond that, it was just a hideous act of vengeance for the rape of his sister Tamar. Now, you know, I want to talk a minute because what has driven Absalom all of this time has been unforgiveness and bitterness and rage. And when we, it's important, when you talk about Absalom, you have to talk about forgiveness and unforgiveness because the reality is unforgiveness does not hurt the person that you refuse to forgive. Unforgiveness in your life poisons only you. And Absalom's hatred took root after Amnon's rape, rape of Tamar. And here's the thing that, that I want us to realize. I want you to see the, the tragedy in this, the irony in all of this. Because after David failed to punish Amnon, Absalom, Absalom's hatred burned into this just almost psychotic uh, rage, this poison in his spirit until at the end here, now Absalom has become what he hated, a rapist. You know, the reality is we tend to become like those upon whom we focus. Absalom spent his life focused on Amnon and then David, but, but it was really focused on his hatred for Amnon and, and and, and, and let me just ask this, have you ever known somebody, maybe a, a, a young man who, who grew up in a household with a horrible father, abusive father, and, and they've said things like, I'll never be like my dad, I'll never be like my father, I'm never going to do that, and then they grow up to only do the very things that this father did? You know why? It's because their eyes were focused on the one thing, on that one person, and what we we tend to become like those upon whom we focus, and that's exactly why Scripture tells us time and time again that we need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus and not on the people around us. Because how many of you know people will fail us? Anybody discovered that? If you haven't discovered that yet. Uh, then, you know, you live in a, a really wonderful world that I'd like to know how you got there. People will hurt us, won't they? People will, will fall short, and then the temptation in that moment, when they don't live up, now it can be a major thing, sometimes it's not a big deal, uh, but, but however, they still didn't live up to our, our expectations, because that's where unforgiveness comes from is that it's unmet expectations. We expect this person to reach this level and they don't reach this level. And so we're offended by that and we're, and we, we're tempted to hold unforgiveness. And, and so that's exactly why, by the way, that's exactly why those that are closest to you can offend you the greatest. Because you have much higher expectations for your spouse than some man that you see, you know, or you're a woman that you see walking down the road. So that person walking down the road that you don't know, they can walk up to you and say something really mean and you don't like it, but you don't, you don't spend your life focused on that person and walking in unforgiveness and you know, thinking about them the rest of your life. But if your spouse walks up to you and says something, man, now that hurts, doesn't it? Because the level of expectation is different. And, and so uh, anyway, you know, the temptation... When we're offended, when the temptation when we're hurt is to, is to begin to hang on to that. And when we hang on to that, then what's happening is 
We're focusing our mind and our, our attention and our energy on that person. And the problem is we will become like that person. Uh, and, and, and the more we do that, the more... Uh, and what happens, here's what happens. Somebody does something hurtful and we focus on them and we say, I don't want to be like that. But we keep focusing on them in unforgiveness. And then the bitterness begins to grow in our lives and we don't even realize the trail of destruction that we're leaving behind us and the relationships and the people around us. And we become just like them, being somebody that's constantly offending and hurting people and, and doing these things because you've let that bitterness take, take uh, hold in your heart and you became like the very thing that you said you hated. That's why we need to learn to focus on Jesus no matter what other people do to us. People will do things. People will say things. Sometimes it's unintentional. and Other times they say it because they're trying to hurt you. But in the middle of that, we have to be able to get past our own emotions and past that and say, Lord, I'm not going to let that emotion control me. I'm not going to let that unforgiveness control me. I'm going to focus on you, Lord. That's, that's part of the reason why the, the, he said, uh, that God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The, the reason he said that is not because he wants it, it's because he knows that it will be devastating and be nothing but death to you if you're out there trying to take your own vengeance. It'll destroy your life. You know, Paul said in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he said, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, we're looking at him, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for, th uh, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So as we focus on Jesus instead of all of the other things and all the other problems and all the other people that hurt us, then the Holy Spirit is able to transform us into His image, and because we're looking at Him, we become like a mirror and begin to reflect His glory to the people around us. However, if you refuse to let go of your wounds... Ever known anybody that refused to let go of the wounds? If you refuse to let go of your wounds, they will eventually devastate marriages, destroy homes, ruin ministries, and just bring untold destruction into relationships. Instead, receive the healing power of God and walk in His forgiveness. Back to David, though, though he had vacated Jerusalem and left the palace's front doors wide open for Absalom, he... He wasn't quite ready for retirement yet. He wasn't buying his cemetery plot or anything like that. Uh, there, there, were, there were several reasons he left Jerusalem. First of all, uh, in all I mentioned this in a previous week, in all of David's military career, he had never defended a city. Everything he had done was attack. It was aggressive. It was never a defensive uh, posture. And he had always been the, the attacker all, all his life, always on the offense. And of all of the military strategies David excelled at, defensive warfare was not one of them. He had never done that. So he decided it was in his best interest to flee Jerusalem before Absalom arrived. And, and by doing that would give him time to regroup and he would, he would live to, to fight another day. By the way, there's a great lesson there uh, for us. Uh, and, and probably most parents here, you, if you've been a parent for very long, you've figured this one out. You've, you've got to choose the hill that you're going to die on. You know what I'm talking about? You know, I mean, you can say, I'm going to take a stand here. 
you're not wearing the sandals today. It's not really a life-changing issue, but you say, this is the hill I'm going to die on today, and you make both of your lives miserable, you know, and it's just this disaster of a day and all these things, you know, but parents have learned, most parents have learned, you've got to choose the hill you're going to die on. Listen, there are times when there are issues that maybe you do need to confront, but maybe, maybe, like David, you need to take a step back and, and wait to hear from the Lord and get some wisdom from the Lord because if you do it now, maybe you're, you're going to have too much of you in it. Anybody ever have too much of you in something you do? <laughs> yeah, everybody's hand needs to be up because <laughs> nobody here is like Jesus. I mean, I know I got a lot of respect for all of y'all, but you're not, <laughs> none of us have arrived. And there are times when... When our emotion, um, our anger, our frustration gets the better of us and it shows up. And so there are times we need to realize, listen, this is not the time that I need to fight this. I need to take a step back and I need to wait on God and I need to hear from God. I need to, to know what I need to do to approach this instead of attacking it with your own emotion and your own anger or your own frustration and, and then just making a mess of it. Because here's what I learned a long time ago. I learned a long time ago that if I take it into my own hands, I just make a mess every time. But if I'll wait on the Lord, now see, if I'm waiting on the Lord, if I'm listening for, for him, I might take a step back and he says, no, I want you to go. Then I can go. But he also might say, no, it's not the right time. It's not the right time. For David, it was not the right time to fight. Not in Jerusalem. He was experienced enough to know that even a, even a setback uh, such as this did not mean ultimate defeat. So he, he, he said, now's not the time. The, the second reason I think he went was that for David, the Judean desert was sort of his secret weapon. There's nobody that knew that wilderness like him. That's how, he had, that's how he had learned everything that he had learned militarily. It was out there. He knew that, that wilderness. He knew where to go. He knew where to, where to fight. He knew all about it. So he went back to some place that he knew. And the third thing was he loved Jerusalem. And he said, if I fight here, this city of God, this beautiful place, this place that I love is going to be destroyed. But, but he, as I said, he, he was experienced enough to know that even a setback of saying, okay, i got to leave Jerusalem, it did not mean ultimate defeat. Fleeing Jerusalem was not the end of him. And, and here's, the, here's the lesson for us, for all of us, that we need to understand. Abandon the road is not the end of the road unless you fail to make the turn. Think about that. You ever been going down one way and the, and the Lord says, okay, here's a bend in the road. And we don't want to have been in a road. We want to keep going the way we're going. And, and you know what? That bend in the road, the change, the, the different circumstances, the thing that you didn't see coming, that doesn't mean it's the end of the road unless you miss it, unless you say, miss the, God saying turn left, and then you miss the bend in the road. Now you're in trouble. And David was not going to make that mistake. He, he had suffered a horrible and humiliating setback, but he was not going to be defeated. So rested and regrouped and restored by God, he, he planned his attack. And, and what he decided was he'd go back to basics, go back to the beginning. And he decided he was going to use the same tactic that he had used to take down Goliath, uh, that the Lord had used him to, to take down Goliath. And what he did was he decided he was going to lure the stronger 
uh, heavily favored Absalom into the wilderness because Absalom had a stronger army, he had more soldiers, he was more heavily armed, and so David was the underdog. But David said, now listen, I, if I go attack him there, I'm at a huge disadvantage, but if I can lure him out here, I know this place. And so uh, bringing him out there gave it an advantage to David. So David, he divide, divided his army into three groups, and each had its own general. One was led by Joab, another was by Joab's brother Abishai, and the third was led by Ittai the, the, the uh, Gittite. What a name, Ittai the Gittite. <laughs> I don't know, I never thought about it before, but it kind of hit me, that's a funny name. But, uh, and, and David got his armies together, he got his generals in place, and he, he intended... Unlike what got him into trouble with Bathsheba, this time he intended, I'm going to go into battle with you. This time, however, uh, he, was, he was quickly talked out of it because they, they said to him, they said, basically, they said, listen, King David, we love you. We'd love to have you on the battlefield, but you understand that the only thing Absalom wants out of this battle is you dead. That's all he really wants and if he gets you, if he kills you, that's the same as killing 10,000 of us. So they said, please, my Lord, please do not give him that opportunity. We're willing to fight, for, fight our Hebrew brothers uh, uh, for one reason only. Because they had never fought a, a civil war like this. They said the only reason we're willing to fight against other Jewish men uh, is because for this one reason... We're doing it to restore you to the throne. And if you die today, then all the bloodshed is going to be wasted. It'll be worthless, be in vain. Well, David wisely submitted to his general's wisdom and he dispatched the three divisions into the, into the, the forest of, of Ephraim. He did, however, as they were leaving, give them one standing order. Everybody know what a standing order is in the military? That means that this is the order, this is, unless you hear differently, this is the law. And his, his one standing order was this, don't kill my son. Now, how confusing of a command is that? You know, I mean, that must have been very confusing to those, these men that, have, that have been willing to give up their lives to put David back on the throne because they understood that there was no restoring Absalom. They, they understood that he was way past repentance, that, that this was over, that this was done. There's no way that Absalom is going to come back under the, the rule of David. It's just not going to happen. They could see that. Absalom had engaged in a horrible deception for years, all with one aim, and that was to forge a rebellion against his father. And now he had humiliated David by, by uh, capturing the capital city and then raping 10 of David's concubines. I mean, it was, it's very clear Absalom has gone over the edge. Yet David commanded his army to spare his life. Here's what, you know, I see that. And here's, here's a lesson for us. Watch out for your blind spot. No, no matter how great a leader you may be, no matter how spiritual you may be, no matter what wonderful vision or creativity or ability you may have, there's always a blind spot that your enemy will exploit if he can. Now here's, do you know what the trouble with the blind spot is? You can't see it. That's the definition. 
And that's one of the reasons why it's so important to have people in your life that you have given them the, the, the uh, ability and the privilege to speak into your life where if they see something, they can say, hey, what's going on here? And you can be honest with them because there are things in each of our lives, everybody has a blind spot somewhere and you've got to have somebody to be able to point it out and say, hey, what's, what's going on here? And then you've got to be uh, humble enough to be able to listen and take it seriously. Because if it's somebody that knows you very well and somebody that you know loves you very deeply, that's the person we need to listen to very closely when they say, hey, I see something I'm not sure about. Can you tell me what's going on over here? Now, if it's, you know, Joe Schmo out on the street and, you know, he comes up to me and I don't know him from Adam and he says, hey, I want to talk to you about a problem I see in your life. I'm probably not going to listen to him. You know, it's like, get in line, buddy. You know, But we need to have that kind of person because if I have that blind spot, and I believe that we all do because none of us have arrived and we, we, all, uh, uh, we all tend to, you know what we do? We, we give ourselves a pass. Uh, what we do is we judge other people by their actions and then we judge ourselves by our intentions. You know what I'm talking about? So the other person, they did something. Well, they didn't mean to. I don't care. That's what they did. But then when I do something, I want to, judge my, I want to be judged by my intention. And so we all have these things in us that want to excuse things and want to put things on the back burner. And we want to, we want to uh, you know, give ourselves a pass. Uh, uh, but we need to pay attention. We need to listen and we need to try to discover those places in our lives where we're, where we're not like Christ and we've been, we've been ignored or we've been just completely blind to it. Well, for David, it's very obvious. His blind spot is his son. His blind spot is his son. He refused to admit who Absalom had become. He, 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 he refused to see. It's like I, I said before uh, that... Uh, there are none so blind as those who will not see. Everybody else could see what Absalom had become. Everybody else could see that there's no hope for reconciliation. But David refused to admit it, refused to see it. You know, just as the king had done as, as a boy facing the giant, his outnumbered army would, uh, uh, what he decided to do, he said, listen, we're just going to wait. And they just waited for the arrogant Absalom to bring the battle to them. And once again, David proved to be a master strategist. Absalom had a larger, heavier, more cumbersome army that was poorly prepared for desert warfare, but he also controlled the capital, and a wiser military officer with these advantages would not have led his army out into the wilderness to face an army of guerrillas for whom the desert was a second home. But again, he wasn't thinking very clearly. He was driven by his rage, driven by his unforgiveness, driven by his, his, his uh, bitterness. And, and because he was driven by these things, it did, he could not stand back and wait because he was being driven by these, these emotions. And Absalom was so desperate to defeat David that he just, he lost all reason. And, and David's three uh, decisions, uh, or excuse me, divisions, encircled and, and outflanked Absalom's army. And here's how 1 Samuel 18, 2 Samuel 18 describes it. 
in verse 7 and 8 says, There was a great slaughter that day. This is a very sad verse because it's sort of like the American Civil War. You know, the reason why the American Civil War had so many casualties is because every casualty on both sides is still American. And this is a sad verse because all of these casualties, these are, these are David's people. These are the people that he had fought for, that he had, he had uh, worked so hard for. It says, there was a great slaughter that day and 20,000 men laid down their lives. The battle raged all across the countryside. And listen to this line here. And more men died because of the forest than were killed by the sword. So that's why David moved out of the wilderness. He knew the wilderness. David had tempted Absalom's gigantic army into such disadvantageous terrain that soldiers, you know, you just picture them out there uh, stumbling into crevices and falling over cliffs and getting into situations that there are more that died uh, in the, because of the wilderness than that actually died by the sword. And, and in a way, that there was mercy in that for, for David's troops because, remember, this is not, you know, an army of 20,000 Philistines or Amalekites that they're fighting. These are, these are fellow Jews. And so David's plan to lure them into difficult terrain meant that more than half of the deaths were, were a, a result of the rugged landscape rather than the sword of their Hebrew brothers. So that meant that, that there was that many more that did not have to be killed by another Jew. As David had requested, his army did not intentionally try to bring harm to Absalom. However, at one point in the battle, after the outcome had been, become clear, it was obvious Absalom was going to lose. Young Absalom was a, attempting to escape uh, when one of the more ironic scenes of, in the, all of the Bible occurred. Now, we know from Scripture that Absalom was a very handsome man. And he was described as just a perfect specimen of a, man, of a man. And I don't know if you knew this, you probably do, but, but he only cut his hair once a year. Uh, and he only did that because it was too heavy to carry the load around. Uh, but it, it was just part of his persona. He was very proud. He knew he was handsome. You ever known somebody that was good looking and, you, and they knew they were good looking? Yeah, and this is Absalom. And so now... Trying to escape the battle by fleeing as fast as he could on a mule, Absalom's gorgeous flowing hair became snagged in the, in the thick branches of a great tree as he passed under it. And as it got snagged there, the mule just kept running. So he's hanging there in this tree by the hair that he was too vain to cut. I hear that story, you know, my, the first verse that comes to my mind, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, but a, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Boy, if there's ever a living picture of that, there's, there's Absalom. His own pride, his own vain, vanity ends up getting him hanging from a tree by his hair. But you know what? The soldiers, when they found him, keeping their word, David's soldiers, they refrain from killing Absalom. Instead, they go to their commander, Joab, and, the, and, and they tell him, uh, Hey, we got Absalom. He's hanging by his hair from a tree. I mean, can you imagine that moment? That Joab's like, he's what? <laughs> but he, he said, they basically said, we, we found him. He's hanging by, by his hair from a tree. And Joab is just dumbfounded. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean he's hanging there by his hair, completely defenseless, and you just left him? He's got to die now 
course, the soldiers, you know, they remind Joab immediately of David's one request. I imagine them saying, listen, Joab, much respect to you as our general, but you could not pay me enough money in this world to make me kill Absalom. I mean, remember what David did to those who killed King Saul, the guy who said he killed him? You remember what David did to the two guys that killed King Ishbosheth? What do you think he's going to do to the guy that kills his son? They said, Joab, you can kill us if you want to, but I ain't going to do it. Now, you know what, Joab, he understood. He understood their reasons. I, I think he probably even respected them for it. But he also knew, he knew that he needed to do what David could not bring himself to do. So he ordered the men to show him the, the, the dangling pretender to the throne. And Joab, as we all know, as we've talked about, was never squeamish about killing. Joab took three arrows and shot them into Absalom's heart. And then ten soldiers drew their swords and plunged them again and again into the body of the, of the usurper until he was dead. Now since, remember, now David is not on the battlefield. They talked to him and they leave him into staying behind. So David, because he, he's not on the battlefield, he, he doesn't know. He has no idea of what's, what's going on. He doesn't know what the outcome of the battle is. And, and, and so Joab immediately sends a, a runner, a dispatch, to tell David the word of the day's events. And the messenger arrived at David's camp rejoicing. And he's saying, all is well. The Lord has dealt severely with all those who stood against you. Saying, it's good news, David, we won. And David's first response, his only response to the good news of the battle is, what about young Absalom? Is he all right? Now, listen, I want to say this, because it's easy to be hard on David, but parents here know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you don't have children, then wait until you do, and one day you'll understand. But... How many of you know what I'm talking about when, when I say your children never really grow up in your eyes? You know what I mean? I mean, you know they're growing up, but you look at them and you, they're still your baby. You know, that's just the way it is. And it doesn't matter what they have done. It doesn't matter how they have lived or, or how they have wounded you. Your babies are still your babies. That's why a serial killer's mother can still love the serial killer because they don't look at the child and say, I can't believe what you did. I can't stand you. I'm sure there are some that do that, but many mothers stand by their children because your baby, it doesn't matter what they do, you still love them deeply. You can be angry. You can be frustrated. You can be completely flabbergasted at what they've done, but at the same time, under, underpinning all of that is there's this deep love that says, I still love them. I, I, I remember holding this baby in my arms and I remember all of the potential. And even though it's all lost, it's still my baby. You know, a parent's desire to pick up their children and hug them tight and, and promise them that everything will be, will be okay, it just never goes away. And to all of Israel, to everybody that saw it, Absalom, they knew was a dangerous rebel who deserved to die. But to David, Absalom was the little baby boy who once upon a time slept peacefully in his daddy's arms. So he says, what about, what about young Absalom? David's he's talking about his son. He asked about his son as though he were still an innocent child. Of course, the, the naive messenger didn't pick up on the father's concern for his son and 
he proudly announced, he said, may all your enemies both now and in the future be as that young man is. When David realized what he was saying, when he he heard the news of his son's death, he was overwhelmed with grief and he burst into tears. Now, news of the king's sorrow spread throughout the army. Now, here's the thing. They've just won a great victory. This should be a day of celebration. But a wet blanket of gloom just smothered the joy of victory. I mean, David's loyal soldiers, they had stuck with their king when no one else would. You know, while while villagers like Shimei that we mentioned uh, last week threw rocks at David and cursed him, these soldiers loved him and they remained true to him and, 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 and they risked their lives to restore the rightful king to the throne. And now with victory in hand, David's overwhelming grief made them feel ashamed. And, and, they, and there they are, this army, this victorious army, they just basically sneak back into Jerusalem with their tails tucked between their legs when they should have been having a victor parade as they come back into the city and celebrate. Well, finally, Joab, he could take it no more. And, and he, he speaks to David in a way that probably no one else would, would even dare. Listen, he, he, he says as he approaches the king, he says, listen, you are ruining this whole victory. Your, your faithful soldiers risked their lives. They killed for you today. You, you, you think you had a rebellion on your hands with your son Absalom? These men have been loyal to you. They have fought for you and have done nothing. You have done nothing but cover their faces with, with shame. And you have made the victors feel as, as though they had lost. And he says, would you have been happier if we had all died and Absalom was still alive? David, you know, he, he kind of comes to a sense of sees his error and he says, of, of course, that would not make me happier, he says. And he says, your victory probably saved my, my life and saved the lives of my wives and my concubines and my children. And I know it saved my throne. But Joab's not done yet. He, he says, Absalom was an unrepentant, vengeful murderer who needed to be killed you tried exiling him once. Do you remember that? How'd that work out, David? It, it doesn't matter that, that he was your son. The nation is better off without him now. And he says to him, he says, now listen, if you don't, I mean, this is all paraphrased, but he says, if you don't get out on that balcony and wave to the people and, and turn this day of mourning into a celebration, then, then you're going to lose your troops to the first man who shows some appreciation for their loyal service. Well, at that, the mourning father recognized Joab's wisdom. He walked among his soldiers and among the people and congratulating everyone on the great victory for Israel. And David was reinstated as king of Israel. But his personal pain was unfathomable. Here's, here's a lesson in, us, in this for us. When, when you're in leadership... There will be times when you have to deal with your own wounds privately and not bleed on your followers. I, I, let's bring it down just, you know, organizationally, but as parents, you're the leader of your, of your family. There are times when you're hurting that you have to serve and care for your children and you can't shower your pain on them. You understand what I'm saying? 
Because being a leader, whether it's a leader in a family, a leader of church, a leader of a nation, whatever it is, being a leader sometimes is lonely. Sometimes isolation is the only way to handle the burdens of leadership. There'll be times when life forces you to go into battle, to fall on your face and to pour out your grief before God alone because the weight is too heavy to bear on your own. And so you go into the presence of God and you, you pour your heart out. And then, then the, the moment will come when you have to get up and you have to wash your face and get back into the world and be the leader your people need. Be the leader your family needs. I mean, your family may be hurting, you may be wounded, your heart may be crying out, yet there must be times when you walk among the people and minister to those under your authority. There'll be times when even though you can hardly even stand up straight, you walk out there and you say, everything is going to be okay because I know the God we serve. There'll be times when you will be called upon by God to minister to other people even in the moment when your heart is breaking. In fact, sometimes that brokenness is what gets you ready to be able to minister to someone else who is broken. Because you can understand what they're going through in a way that you could not understand before. In the, it's a very simple thing. Uh, you know, uh, 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 when, uh, when you lose someone you love, like, I, 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 this is going to get real personal. I know Miss Gina, that her father has passed away. I did not understand the pain of that as well as I do now, before last June. And now that I understand that, when I hear of someone who loses someone that they, they, they love dearly, I, I understand it, I have a different, I can minister to them at a whole different level because I've walked down the path that they have walked I've experienced what they've experienced, which, by the way, is one of the things that makes Jesus so amazing because he is God. And yet he walked the face of this earth and he faced every temptation that we faced. And he went through all the things that we went through, even losing someone he loved. He walked through all of it. And Hebrews chapter two says one of the reasons that he walked through all of that was so that he could he could look at us. When we walk through the valley, when we're going through those times, he can look at us and say, I know, I know exactly how you feel. I've been there. I've wept. And he sits there when you're sitting in the, on your, the edge of your bed and nobody else is around and you're weeping. He sits there and he weeps with you. And he says, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm right here. I'm going to carry you through this. I've been through it before, so I know the way. See, sometimes in, in that moment of when our heart is breaking, when the load is heavy, when things are hard, it's in those moments we've got to remember that if no one else sees, he does. If no one else understands, he does. He, he sees every teardrop. There's a, there's a passage in Psalms that says that he, he catches every teardrop. He, he preserves that. He knows. He sees the pain. He, he understands the sorrow. He weeps with you as you weep. And, and, and he, we have to remember that he has promised to us that he 
will be all that we need to sustain us. He is all you need to sustain you. He's all you need when you're facing that moment, that sorrow, the brokenness, the the pain, whatever it might be. He is all you need. He is all you need. Even in a place where you just don't see another way. Makes me think of Elijah. Remember Elijah when he, after, (laughs) I don't have time to go into all of the things, but he had this great victory against the the priest of Baal and the drought is going on and he's out in the wilderness all by himself. He has no means to sustain himself. He can't stay alive. He can't feed himself. There's no food. And what does God do? He says, I'm going to send some ravens to bring you food. See, God can do things that you cannot see coming. I, I don't think Elijah said to himself, I'm going to go out in the wilderness And I believe that God is going to send me ravens with food in their beaks to drop it off for me to eat. I think, I don't think he ever saw that coming. You know, or the widow, because later, you know, when, when the brook finally ran dry, when he, when he, God says, I want you to go to this specific widow in this specific town. And and he goes to this widow and and he says, Hey, fix me a cupcake. Read it. That's kind of what he said. He says, fix me a cupcake. And she says, listen, all I got is enough. I've got enough to prepare one last meal for my son and me. I'm a widow. We don't have anybody, you know, to, to help us. And in the middle of this drought, I'm going to fix this last meal. And then we're, my son and I, we're going to go home and die. And Elijah says, hey, well, here's the thing. Uh, I promise God will take care of you if, he, if you feed me first. Then if that doesn't sound like a used car salesman. You know what I'm saying? You know? Oh, you don't need a warranty. (laughs) Yet, she could not see. She could not even begin to understand how God would provide for her. Yet, she ministered in her brokenness to the man of God. And the Lord said, Just like I took care of him with ravens, I'm going to take care of you. You know, David lost his son. A loss that would be devastating for anyone. One, you know, I can't even begin to imagine losing a child. Yet his soldiers risked their lives and, and shed blood to place God's anointed king back on the throne. And Jerusalem remained intact due to David's wise decision to leave town and Israel was once again under the leadership of the greatest king it would ever know. And there was, and there was infinite reason to rejoice and celebrate. But David temporarily brought, shame, temporarily brought shame on everyone by publicly mourning the loss of a murderer and a rapist. And I, I bring that all back to what we were just talking about. Because despite our own personal pain, we must, probably more quickly than we, than we would probably like, come to the point where we allow the Lord to minister to us and we lead our families and we lead whatever group we're leading, we lead the ministry, we lead the church, whatever God has put under us, we lead that and show other people gratitude and serve other people 
no matter how broken we feel, trusting and knowing that he will take care of us. I want to pray with you. Father, I just pray, Jesus, you'd help us. I know everybody here.